Welcome to The Small Podcast. In this series, we'll be talking to the people forging careers within and solving the problems of private equity and private equity-backed scale-ups, startups, and carve-outs. I'm Jonathan Evans, Marketing Manager for The Small Consultancy, and with me is my co-host, Caroline Hall. Hi. With us today is product leader, Dave Martin. Dave's helps B2B SaaS founders and product leaders build solid foundations to allow their products to scale effectively. A former CPO across multiple industries, including HR tech, FinTech, and EdTech, Dave now leads his own consultancy, Right to Left, working with leaders to make better products by avoiding the product momentum gap. Welcome, Dave. Yeah, hi there, John. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Dave. Before we move on to what exactly the product momentum gap is, which I just mentioned in that introduction, would you just like to give us a quick run through of your career and sort of how you ended up doing what you're doing today? Yeah, sure. I mean, way back when. Back when Windows didn't have numbers after its name but letters, i.e. Windows NT, I was a C++ engineer and uh, moved from there into leading teams and management. And before I knew it, I was straddling the gap between business and technology. And uh, that role has evolved, and today we call it product leadership and product management. So I've spent about two decades in the product leadership roles. Normally, my work has been in companies going through some form of transformation or startups that are trying to be disruptive, which is a different kind of transformation. Um, so, And hence, my experience is quite varied in sector, but not varied in the journey. The path is pretty has always been pretty similar, actually. The challenges are always very similar. So um, after enjoying an exit of uh, my, la- where, uh, my last company, where we were a CPO at Tesla Global, uh, which was private equity owned, we... Uh, I took the opportunity to quite selfishly form a company doing the bit I enjoyed the most rather than the bits I didn't. So, and the bit I enjoy the most is helping other leaders grow and develop and seeing their teams flourish because of good leadership. And good leadership is a mixture of strategy, of communication and motivation. And uh, so I, I work in that space, either in short consultancy projects, but uh, mostly in coaching product leaders. So hopefully that gives you a gives you a, a feel. Yeah, no, it does definitely. And we we mentioned then. I I imagine people while listening to this will go check you out on on LinkedIn, and they'll see this in your headline as well about coaching people to avoid that product momentum gap or close the product momentum gap. Do you want to just explain a little bit about what you mean by the momentum gap? Yeah, sure. Um, probably worth a quick um, plug. You know, me and my co-founder, Andrea Sayers, not co-founder, co-author, Andrea Sayers, have a book coming out. Uh, it uh, might be out by the time this goes live, might not. It's be coming out in mid-September. Um, and uh, that's called The Product Momentum Gap. So if you really are interested in it, there's an entire book on the topic. But the, uh, in short, it's around talking about and addressing the challenge when you scale, when you start to grow. So you've found that product market fit. You've got a strong product market fit because product market fit isn't binary, it's it's linear. And um, you've mm. probably secured funding of some sort to be able to grow the organization and maximize the potential that you have. And uh, typically at that point, it means whether you do it on purpose or not, it means you end up going broader than the core segment in the market you were serving. Um, sometimes it's not even recognized that's what you're doing because it's still within the same sector, but you start to go a bit broader. And as you go broader, that market fit 
as I mentioned, which isn't binary but is linear, becomes slightly weaker. And at that point, sales cycles for people on the edge um, start to slow down. Um, you know, retention might change for people on the edge. And the journey isn't the growth journey starts not look quite as healthy as you'd hoped. And unfortunately, just because one, we can't, we struggle to measure this stuff and recognize what's going on. And secondly, because it's human nature, we, uh, we think, oh, fish in a bigger pond, you know, and sales and marketing go broader by mistake. And they might make some wins in the broad, you know, much broader sectors and segments, but, uh, which can sometimes give us the false uh, belief that that we're winning in those in that wider market but as we go wider and wider that product market fit gets weaker and weaker so instead of resolving the issue to go deep we end up going thin and broad and every time we go a little wider we're making the problem bigger um and at some point well how what that looks like is slow down growth acceleration of new sales and retention uh starts to decline doesn't mean we aren't making new sales but the acceleration pace the pace of growth starts to decline and miss some of the we start to miss targets and the pressure kicks in um and it's at that point we're trying to avoid that problem and or recognize we're going down that route if we don't recognize it and leave it too late we hit a point of no return we hit a point where it's incredibly hard to get back onto the right path and it's easy for listeners to think, well, how do you hit the point of no return? Why, why would it be hard to undo? And what happens is you end up building features on the journey to close customers, to close deals. It's called, I call it closing code. You know, we've all been there mm-hmm. in product. Every product leader has been there where somebody's saying, hey, if we could build this feature, we could close this big deal. And we end up adding capabilities to the product line and morphing the product line and creating bloat and tech debt in order for it to support some of these deals. But unfortunately, often those things aren't repeatable. So it's not like we're adding a feature. We do it thinking we are, but we're often not adding a feature that's going to result in 10 more sales. It's just one. And as we do more and more of that, it becomes extremely hard to correct the situation because by correcting our situation, it's back onto a good line. It means removing some features. It means refining the product. It means getting back to what the core thing is. And all of those things result quite normal would result if we were to follow that track once we've gone past the point of new no return would result in some revenue loss. And nobody wants the picture of revenue loss. So we end up trapped by our own customers down a lot journey and a pro a strategy that we never intended to go down. And then we try to make the best of a bad situation. Um and that that that's where we see phenomenally great companies as they scale, getting stuck onto an average growth path and never never getting past it. And this is why, you know, going from 1 million to 10 million is really difficult in ARR. And if we're trying to get from 10 million to 100 million, it's really difficult. And we've got to really systematically understand the segments, market segments and our ICPs and understand when opportunities are outside of ICP and understand when we're making tactical short-term product investments rather than longer-term strategic investments to deliver the value we're trying to create. I I really like that phrase, trapped by your customers. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. It's, it's, it's uh, yeah, I, I think it's something definitely a lot of people listening will, will identify with. I mean, even mm. in marketing, you know, as you said, it's that broadening piece 
mm. is often where things come unstuck from a marketing perspective as well as 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 product um as you do try and talk to a lot of different audiences that you know aren't your core audiences um I mean, in that situation then where you are having to make those calls and you said make those, you know, what is a strategic thing that's going to add value to the product, what isn't? How, I mean, if somebody's sitting here and they're thinking, do this sounds familiar, what what sort of advice would you give them? Cool, yeah. So, I mean, this is where I spend all day working pretty much. This is the my sweet spot. And um, the, the key, in a real blunt, simple way, the key is to take ambiguity out of the word value. When value isn't defined, what does strategic value mean to you? When that is left undefined, in which case it's just revenue, it's just money. When it's left undefined, making a priority of what's more valuable than something else really comes down to who can articulate value better than someone else. And this is why our initiatives coming from the sales force of the business often get prioritized. It's not because it's the right or best idea. It's because their job, they are professionals articulating value. <laughs> if they weren't, they wouldn't be selling, they wouldn't be in sales and they wouldn't, or they wouldn't last very long. They are very good at articulating value. That's, they're professionals at it. So if we aren't, if we have an ambiguity or vague definition of what we mean by value, or whoever articulates the idea and the value that comes with the idea the best will end up with that thing getting prioritized and everybody chasing it, you know, and that leads us down, down that path we described earlier, leads us down a journey where we're, we end up by mistake being tactical. Instead, we need to understand what does value really mean? How do we define that strategically? And I think, I think sometimes it's worth thinking product engineering is still such a young discipline and still very when misunderstood and still are implemented incredibly differently across different organizations. It yeah. might be worth thinking for a second, a little bit, comparing it to marketing for a second, slightly more established. And, you know, in marketing, we, uh, we're going to sign off a budget to decide how much money we're going to spend in a year. We're going to work out how much money we're going to invest to get some sort of return. And, there'll be a marketing strategy. It probably talks about where we might spend the money. It probably talks about the kind of people we're going to focus and the kind of value we're going to create. And at some point, there's some assumption that we're going to create some, if it's not brand marketing, if it's lead gen marketing, we're going to generate some leads and assuming somebody else can do their job and convert them, it'll turn into cash. We don't lay out a campaign plan and say in January what the tagline for the campaign in Christmas will be 12 months later. No one does that. I've never yet seen an organization that does that. And if the marketing function finds out halfway through the year that a particular marketing channel isn't performing well, they get rewarded by for that knowledge and changing their plan and going, we're not going to spend that million there. We're going to spend it there because we've learned it doesn't work. We don't want to just waste the money. Now, in product, we have the exact opposite. We're expected, for some reason, to deliver a roadmap that shows exactly all those features we're going to deliver in 12 months' time and details on why and how what they'll do. And if we go off plan, we're not rewarded. We're beating up for it. It's like, well, you said you were going to deliver this feature. Now you're not. Despite the fact the feature has been learned, we've learned that the feature is pointless and a complete waste of money to build. 
it would actually be much easier for most teams just to build it anyway because they'd have less conflict inside the business. So the part of the problem is product fail, and this isn't the fault of anybody really other than sort of history and the product leaders not having the right tools. They don't know how, they haven't really got the right tool to articulate their strategy. They'll have a product strategy. It's written up in some lovely multi-page presentation somewhere that somebody has read at one point and then promptly forgot because we have no way of executing it. The roadmap is the only execution, and then that focuses on the wrong thing. Instead, we need to focus on what articulate that strategy in an actionable, measurable way that defines how we think the product will actually create value so we can measure it. And now there's only one, when we think about marketing, we might say we want to create this number of leads and the this number of qualified leads and we want mm-hmm. to uh, from a particular segment. So we've got some measure. We've got the thing, when they put a campaign out, what's the measurable result? A lead. When product make a release, and that's, you know, at the end of the day, product engineering only do one thing, they release code. When they make a release, what do they do? Well, it doesn't generate money unless you're an e-com business. You're not going to immediately generate cash. And B2B SaaS companies where I work the most, because the, and that's because the problems in product are the gnarliest and toughest to work out. When we think about B2B SaaS companies, there, when we release code, what's the immediate thing that happens? Well, the immediate thing, the equivalent of lead gen, the immediate thing is we create or modify user behavior. So we need to articulate our strategy not in the sense that we do today normally, which is what's the value we're going to create for our clients. Hmm. We need to extend that just a little further to what's the user behavior that we are going to modify and create that we believe through our value assumptions will create this value for the customer, which through our value assumptions we assume will create the value for our business. If we go that little bit further to that user behavior and define those we now and can align around those as an exec team and the senior stakeholders in the business. We then have the equivalent of a marketing funnel to measure and track and see if we're performing. We have a list of KPIs that we should be able to measure, or at least some value indicators. We can't always measure the exact thing we want to, but we have some indicator that some proxy for it, some sort of indicator that lets us track that progress. And we are then able to drive our, strategic decisions and our prioritization based on how well does this initiative we're about to prioritize or deprioritize, how well do we believe it will support making these user behavior value indicators go up or down in the right direction, because sometimes down is the right direction. So that that's the key. We've got to stop committing to some plan 12 months in advance that's pretty fictional and start committing to the key underpinning value assumptions. And now our roadmap can be flexible because now we want we're, we can be happy if we remove something because we found something that's yeah. going to make the indicators go up more. No one's going to be upset. Yeah. We'll be upset if it makes them doesn't, but we, no one's going to be upset. We can yeah. stop wasting money. And you know, that brings me on to that data point that I know this group we talked before about Pendo. Mm-hmm. If you don't know who Pendo are, they're a uh, user product analytics firm. One of the leading ones is Pendo and Amplitude, who are probably the two biggest. They put systems, their system product companies use to analyze what their users are doing inside the product. And Pendo produced a report on, on, on this information annually aggregated, and it's roughly 3,500 different product lines from different companies. It represents hundreds of millions of users worldwide. 
And their last report showed that 88% of all features built and put into the market were rarely or never used by their customer. Which is a shocking statistic. That's huge. It is. It's enormous. In fact, the stats they put out when they promote it, they dumbed it down to 80%. But when you read the full report, it's 88 because it just looks so scary. That means only 12% of every dollar we spend on product engineering is creating any value. Because if the user doesn't use it, I know one thing, it doesn't create value. It might create some short-term value because someone bought it. It might help it get it over a sales line in the short term because, oh, that feature looked interesting. But if they don't use it, they won't buy it again. They won't retain it. And we want to build build a scalable business. We can't have high churn to build a scalable, high-growth business, one that could lead to an IPO. We have to have an NRR, a net retention rate, of at least 120%. Every IPO SaaS business in the world, before it IPO'd, had an NRR of 120 plus percent. Mm-hmm. So we, and that means that out of all of our users, all of our customers last year, we made 120% more revenue this year than we did last year out of the same people. So if we have churn, we can't high churn, we can't be in a positive situation. We can't have hyper growth. It, it just doesn't work. The math, the math is broke. So we can't afford to be producing product features that aren't used. We need to be delivering features that are used for the customer. Worse still, it's not in their report, but from my experience, those that closing code we talked about during our, during the introduction there, where we companies build features to close a big deal and you know to get that thing over the line. My experience is quite often that closing feature that was the must-have to sign it off. When we use products like Pendo to analyze with their usage, quite often that a really important must-have feature never got used by the customer that bought it at all. The buyer thought it was really important or the salesperson thought it was really important to not say no, more than likely, but the people using the product never wanted it in the first place. And that's very common, very common. The other problem, of course, is we're very poor at tracking the costs. We forget the cost of product development, it's almost hidden, or at least from the decisions. We know what it is annually. You know, you might be a 10 million pound aiming to get to your 10 million ARR. You might be spending 3 million quid a year on um, product development and have sort of a four or 5 million pound cost base. Normally at that scale, it's about 50% is on product development of your of your cost. When you think of a company like that, the cost is fixed. You know, our headcounts, they're permanent headcount. Our product development spend is salaries. And they're, they're pretty fixed. So it's easy for us to not consider the decisions we're making week in, week out of investing money. Typically, companies make a decision of what gets built in a sprint, an iteration, a, typically a two-week period of engineering, of planning of what engineering they're going to do. And the mm. typical team, normally there's multiple squads, the typical team working in a sprint costs around twenty-five to thirty thousand pounds a sprint. That's normally roughly when you add it up what a sprint costs. So every time we do sprint plan, which is a thing we do every two weeks, a high cadence, we're making a decision on how to invest thirty grand. We don't stop and think enough about that decision. We don't recognise the money we're spending in each sprint. 
we then look at those things we've decided we're going to do for that sprint and go, is it worth 30K? Will I even get 30K back for doing this? And the shocking thing is, is those features that we built to close a deal that the customer ended up never using anyway, often cost more than the deal was worth because mm. no one was tracking the cost. Mm. So we end up with incredible bad business practice. And in fact, by doing that closing, closing code, getting stuck on closing code is a bit of a drug for the sales team. When we get stuck on agreeing to do these things and track, you know, addicted to it because it's, feels like we're going to make the deal because we say yes to this. We end up accidentally changing our entire business model. If we're a SaaS company, the whole reason SaaS companies sell for high valuation and investors want to invest in them is we write one line of code and sell it to lots of people. That's a nice business model. I like that business model. An agency business model is I write one line of code and sell it to one person and I charge on time and material. When we're The worst is, is when we're writing this closing code, we're behaving like an agency, but we're charging like a SaaS company. So I'm now writing code that I'm only going to sell once, and I'm billing it as if I'm going to sell it lots of times, so I'm not even covering my time and material. Mm-hmm. So not only does it, you know, this, this approach that happens regularly, it devalues organizations very quickly. It reduces their ability to grow. And because we didn't have that strategic value defined by user behavior, and I, that that framework I call the product VCP, um, and it's covered in the book in depth. It's also covered Frog Capital, and I recently put out a toolkit called Scaling Product Market Fit. It's all on their website to uh, that covers how to use this at a high level. It's sort of like a a summary of the book, the quick but the abridged version, so you can get it quickly. The if we've got that. We can make our priority decisions in an educated way against strategic value rather than tactical value. And we can stop making these short-term decisions. And we can recognize if we do this short-term thing, we're going to lose out on the big longer term. And if we do too much of that short-term activity, because there will be some, I mean, we've got to be pragmatic. There will be some of it. We can't do no customization like that. It's very hard in an enterprise world to do that. But if we get the balance wrong and we're all over-indexed on that, we'll get to the end of the year and we'll start our budgeting process for next year and sales will be there thinking about what the potential is against the business plan that was put to the investor a year ago for a year into the journey. And there'll be assumptions in that business plan for how that how the revenue will be bigger in the second year. Yeah, cool. Based on all the work we just were supposed to have done and all the stuff we were meant to build to support it. But we didn't build that stuff because we prioritized wrongly. We didn't execute strategy. We executed tactics and and ended up behaving like an agency. And then the second year's growth becomes really challenging because we don't have the sales team aren't empowered with the new capabilities to help unlock the market because we've, we've been caught up building the wrong stuff in short-term mindset. So we end up then with a bigger challenge. And unfortunately, it's often not even recognised that's what the issue was. Mm-hmm. We 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 don't, we don't stop and go. Why are we in this situation? We, we just yeah. carry on. It's like, oh no, yeah. we're, we're we're incredibly good at being reactive in leadership, rather than mm-hmm. stopping and reflecting for a moment and thinking, well, how did we end up here? We just react and get out and firefight. We get good at firefighting, and whilst that's a very healthy and capable thing for a leadership team and founders. 
we also have to be able to reflect so as not to repeat the mistakes. Mm. The, the, does the first blog I ever got paid to write was about firefighting and product management and <laughs> why it's so common. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, that's really interesting. I think, the, I mean, from an outsider looking in, what you've got there, though, and what immediately would worry me if I was in that situation, you have sales who are, and you did touch on this briefly with, you know, the, the engineering team are there to close code, essentially, and that is what they're paid to do. So if someone's saying, make this, they're going to make it. You know, they're not necessarily there at a strategic level. The sales team want to sell. And, you know, at, a, mm. at an individual level, they need to sell. So their incentive isn't there to look at it in that strategic way. So if product is that kind of lone voice in, say, three or four different parts of the team going, no, let's do this. How how can you kind of assert that control, I guess, as a, as a product yeah. leader? Yeah, great question, Mark. I think there's... There's a couple of key things. First, it's about a, a driving an outcome-led um, mindset for the business that the leadership team agrees upon. The product VCP helps define that outcome from the product standpoint. So we've got that, those clear north stars and indicators. But then moving forwards, we've got to have the right process, the like right, and it's a word we don't like in startup or scale-up very often. We have to have the right governance. And I know it sounds a very corporate <laughs> word, and it is. We have to write the right lightweight governance to be able to say yes or no to these things, to what we're going to do and what we're not. And that's, you know, in its earnest, product management, a large part of product management is actually about risk management. Mm. And there's four risks that every product function has to focus on if they're going to do their job well. They have to focus on value risk. And by that, I mean, will anybody use or pay for this thing? have to focus on viability risk. Can we afford to build and run this thing? have to work, focus on feasibility. Do we have the team and capability to build it within the time frame we want to, within the budget we want to deliver it in? And we have to worry about usability risk. Is Will we be able to do this in a way that the, our common denominator user will actually engage with? Or is it far too sophisticated and complicated? We have to, they're the four key risk areas that product training, product management training should cover and that product managers and the product function should think about. And they need to be, every initiative should consider those things in a one pager to review them and explore them. Now, normally what this then does from a product function is we don't want those, those the, the uh, opinion of those items to just be based on individuals' thoughts and ideas. We really want evidence to be based on those things. Evidence mm -hmm. for us to say, we know that this is feasible or we know people will pay for it or we know they won't pay. And really the product manager's job is to disprove it, not prove it's correct. You can't prove it's right. You can get all the evidence in the world. You can't prove it's going to win. You can prove it was a bad idea and not worth us investing in. You can prove the odds. I think of them as strategic bets, the odds of the bet. With evidence, we can improve the odds or we can reduce the odds. It will never be 100%. There's no such thing as a sure win. But we can definitely get rid of the bad ones and not waste our time and money on them, not waste those numerous sprints that they care pop on them. So when we think of it that way, product the product function needs to spend 30%, if not 50% of its time talking to customers or the market, not be customers, mm -hmm. but talking to the market. 
And it's not talking to the market for fun. It's talking to the market to capture evidence, to support and the decisions and the viewpoint of those four risks on the strategic initiatives we're considering spending money on. Mm. I'm not talking about doing this for the little tiny BAU features that get built. The little, you know, we want to move this button three pixels to the right or whatever nonsense. I don't care about that stuff. I'm talking about the things that are meaningful that we're going to spend hundred grand on, and then we're expecting to, it to help the business mm. in some real factor of uh, ROI. These are the things we need to focus on with evidence. And the evidence in the in too many organizations, the evidence is, oh, well, our salespeople talk to customers all the time. Well, let sales be the proxy. And I really wish this would work. It would be so much easier if it did. But you hinted to it earlier, John. Unfortunately, the sales team, when they have that touch point with the customer, they are completely biased to what they hear. They're incentivized to have a viewpoint that isn't non-biased. They're not researchers, despite the fact that great salespeople ask really good consultative questions. They're not researchers. They're biased. They're looking for things they think is going to be the win. They're also typically optimists because they have to put up with people saying no all day long. So they're typically very optimistic folk. They are the wrong people to to validate things. They're the right people to give us the ideas. That input, amazing. You know, we think customers want this. Brilliant. But now we need to go validate it. with a Not with huge rigor. I'm not talking about massive academic research, but with a bit more rigor, appropriate to the amount of money we think we might spend on the thing. You know, if we think, oh, we can do this in half a sprint, maybe we just do it and see what happens and learn from that. Mm. If we think it's going to take five sprints, then this deserves far more investigation and validation because we're spending more money. And you know, if we're a startup or a scale-up, we've got a runway to achieve our goals before imminent disaster in some cases. Um, we only have so many bullets to fire along that runway and we need them to hit the target. We can't miss the target that often. We don't have many spares. So that's where product validation comes in. And in the product craft, we call it product discovery. It's really just customer market research. Product discovery is just, to, I don't really know why we call it that. It's just research. <laughs> it's it's validation. We're validating name, the customer. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think it really it's the nice part about it being called discovery is we will often learn things we didn't know yesterday, just like yeah. all good research. It's about learning. So if you come back to answer your questions explicitly, if you're a product leader trying to drive drive better decision-making in your organization. You need to drive a culture of evidence-focused decision-making, and we need to focus aggressively on our learning velocity. Mm. Learning velocity outperforms delivery velocity every single time. If I'm learning faster, I'll build what matters and invest my time and money better. If I'm just focused on the output, chucking features out all the time, which is delivery velocity, I have no idea whether they're delivering the outcome I wanted, achieving those, changing those user behaviors the way they need to, to create value for the business. I just know I'm chucking stuff out the door and shipping. That's not enough. It's we, so we need learning velocity along with it. When you start making learning velocity a priority for the business, things get exciting and that knowledge spreads. 
that knowledge, that evidence spreads into marketing, it spreads into sales, it spreads into customer success, and levels up the entire organization. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. And obviously, if you're in a big organization, established organization, even public sector, you know, do a lot of this, they'll have, you say, you know, they'll have teams of use, the researchers doing that, that product discovery and that, that validation piece. How do you do that in a smaller team and a smaller product function? So, I mean, the, the standard sort of approach uh, that's highly popularized and described as modern product management, probably popularized the most by Marty Kagan over in the Silicon Valley product group, is continuous discovery. And if people are interested in the real nitty gritty of how to do that, there's a book by Teresa Torres called Continuous Discovery, which is kind of the Bible for product managers. This goes a bit below the product leader level. This is now we're talking about the habits and the behaviors of my product function and what they need to be doing on a daily basis. But the key really is we're not doing it in a waterfall. Let's go do a big research project. Now we have our learnings. Now go build some stuff. We're just doing it continuously. We think this thing is a good idea. Great. How can we learn and improve the strategic, the odds of the bet? And as we learn more, we'll learn how to solve the problem. If we're happy this problem's worth solving, we'll, we'll solve it better. And we'll iterate on that. So we'll put that version out and we'll learn more about the problem and where we hit and where we missed and then iterate and improve again. So it's about continuous discovery. And the, one of the major mistakes that that happens, and you mentioned like research teams in big organizations, I've worked with some big companies, some big IPO tech companies, um, where they the big pure IPO tech companies like GitLab, these kind of companies who I've worked with in the past, do it brilliantly, where some others, maybe more traditional organizations, not so much. They don't treat this separate as a separate function. They work with the product manager is working with the engineering team. And the product manager's job isn't to solve the problem. The product manager's job is to decide the problem's worth solving and to understand the problem as deep as possible and communicate that to the engineers and the designers. And it's the engineers and the designers who do this, the problem solving. The engineers are the best problem solvers in the company. They understand the technology more than anyone else. They understand the limitation. They understand what they could do with it better than anybody else. If they understand the problem well, and it's communicated in a, the right way to them, they can then solve it better than anybody else. Hmm. So teams that give their engineering team, that give the te- a cross-functional team of product manager, you see these teams that are cross-functional product manager, designer, and normally six engineers, anything from four to six engineers. Those teams, too often, the product manager is just the conduit to tell the team what to build. And they're the teams that fail. They're the businesses that are not going to get hyper growth. It works during seed level when you're finding market fit and the founder is pretty much the product manager. It's, It's slightly different at that scale. But when we grow up and things change, we end up too often just dictating to those teams and the product manager is really just a project manager. They're doing their product work. They're making their decisions. They're not understanding the problem. They're just writing requirements. They're just doing old waterfall work, but we call it agile because we've called it a user story and put it in Jira <laughs> instead of in Microsoft Project. <laughs> There's no difference. Instead, we need the teams that win are the teams that give the get that problem in front of the engineer. So instead mm. of saying, we want this solution, and the solution has been dreamt up in the boardroom or by a customer from sales with sales. Instead, we're taking that 
product managers reverse engineering the solution that's been given to work out what the root cause problems are. Because we do like to communicate and think in solutions, so it's hard. You won't get rid of them. But the product's job is to get under the covers and work out what the real problem is and bring that, prioritize those and bring that to the engineers and the designers for them to solve it. And they, those teams are the ones that drive market differentiation and create innovation. Hmm. Innovation doesn't come from some senior job who isn't talking to a customer and hasn't seen their software used by a real person in the last decade. It comes from the people at the coalface. And that's the product manager understanding the problem and the engineers solving it. And that way we start mm. to really leverage those engineers. They're really high paid salaries in most companies. If we're only using them to as code monkeys to deliver what we've dictated, we're only getting half the value of that salary. We're also demotivating them and making them very unhappy because it's a pretty boring job for them. <laughs> when, yeah. when you find teams where all the engineers have got lots of side projects, that's normally a good sign that your business is just dictating to them and they haven't got enough problem solving in the day job so they're going and doing it somewhere else that's interesting interesting point yeah it is and it, it, it kind of because the next thing i was going to ask about is that can because i mean you touched on it in the earlier answer about is that you know continuous delivery is basically now what's expected in most you know sort of devops environments so was that having a detrimental effect almost when you're saying you know people are aiming to get things out the door rather than take that step back but then obviously you put the continuous discovery alongside yeah. it which you know is is really good so, you know there is that kind of answer to yeah that that's yeah, the process is often called dual track where you've got sort of two sprints simultaneously happening one on discovery one on delivery and the one is feeding mm. the other so this two weeks, we might be doing discovery work. Next two weeks, we might be building the thing we were discovering this week. Mm. And it's called dual track. It's really well documented. Um, it's on my site. I've got blog posts about it. But Mike Hagen's book, Inspired, probably explains it better than anyone else. That's brilliant. Um, just to move slightly on, and obviously we focus very much on product leaders and how product leaders can, can sort of take the initiative. I know... We discussed this when we had a, a sort of chat before this. That part of what you do is obviously not just working with the product leaders, but it's working with senior management and founders, um, you know, to help them mm -hmm. lay those foundations. Um, uh, so do you want to talk a little bit about that and kind of what sort of work you do with them and, and kind of where they need that advice and guidance? Yeah, sure. That's a great point. Um, when we talk about product leaders, quite often the problem one of the challenges product leaders have had or companies have had with their product leaders is for some reason they've hired this leader. They've been, person's been very successful in a different company, clearly got the chops and capabilities, but for some reason it just isn't working. And like a year later, they end up exiting them. And I get called in at that point quite a lot because, uh, you know, the founders complaining to their network that things are broke and then my name gets raised. And normally at that point, the failure was probably nothing to do with the guy you hired, probably nothing to do with the product leader. You know, it's almost certainly to do with the, how you set them up for success or more importantly, fail to set them up for success. How, and it's normally around letting go. The product found the founder in every organization as you scale has got to let go of lots of different aspects of the job. 
uh, you know, otherwise you can't scale. You know, if the founder is a bottleneck or if the founder's decisions always got to be considered, we, we can't make decisions in any form of autonomy. We're always going to end up limiting the speed we can move. They become a serious bottleneck and the bandwidth of the organization mm-hmm. is stuck. And in product, that happens a lot. And the issue there is normally that we haven't managed to clarify the product strategy in a way that the founder is comfortable it can be executed. And we haven't managed to find a way to, for the founder to measure and see that it's been executed and have the right transparency on the process and progress without having to get involved in a deep way. Mm. So we need to make sure that founders have got and product leaders have got the other side of the coin, the right guardrails. Founders need to give product leaders the right guardrails for them to go execute. And normally the big battle is the product leader feels they want to own all the decisions and own the strategy 100% and the founder isn't ready to let go. And the reality, in most companies, the product leader can't own all that strategy decision on their own. They've got other stakeholders and leaders and CEOs and CFOs who are going to have plenty to say no matter what. So it's just about setting the right guardrails. And we touched on it earlier about governance process. And the product VCP is core to this. If when we build a product VCP, part of the key process is we align the management team on on product strategy. And we do that by digging into those value assumptions. There's two types of value assumption. The value assumption of a user behavior creating value for the client. And then the second type of value assumption is the client value creating business value for us. When they're defined and written down and debated and discussed instead of left ambiguous and in the founder's head, when they're written down and discussed and everyone has argued over them, and the armor thing's finished and we've got a nice <laughs> list of them that we agree on, we can go and execute. Um, as soon as that's in place, we then can create the management structure, the governance structure, by using the value indicators from the VCP, from the value creation plan, to then manage and make the product leader accountable. And they're accountable to make those value indicators go up in the, or down. They're accountable to make them go get better, improve them, and hit the targets. Um, and then we're, they're no, long, no longer are they accountable delivery of lots of features they're accountable for making them go up they're going to win at that by learning velocity and they're going to improve their learning by releasing fast mm. but thin lots of small thin releases so to come to your point about devops earlier cicd continuous integration continuous development if we've got these teams that are able to do that and and at least some segment of customers who can are comfortable experiencing that because normally this and especially in enterprise, we can't be releasing at the speed we can to the customer because they can't cope with the change, but a segment of them can. We can be learning fast and we can be making good decisions. And the founder then has something to manage the product leader with. Some set of numbers, just like they manage the sales team or the marketing leader. How, what are you doing to make these things go up? What are the decisions that have been made to support it? What's the plan? And what's our progress on the plan? Instead of focusing again, like we talked about at the very beginning on that roadmap, which really assumes all those things of value and takes the, distracts the decision making from what problems are we going to solve to how well are this engineering building 
and product, they actually, we can't contrive fast engineers build stuff. We don't make those technical decisions. We're not the engineering managers. We, end, we know which problems are worth solving and whether the solution we've come up with is good enough to solve the problem. That's what we're responsible for. So we're, so it build, building the VCP, it helps the founder let go mm. while still having the right visibility. It helps the founder create the right guardrails for their product leader. And depending on the scale, they might not need a fully-fledged product leader. It might just be the first senior product manager hire. Yeah. And quite often, too often we go for putting leadership people into jobs too early. You know, we've got to wait until the business is That's a bit bigger sometimes. As long as the guardrails are there. Yeah, that's an interesting point, actually, especially about the the leadership. It's it's assessing at what point do you need a leader, especially in that size. So, yeah, that's a really interesting point. Mm. Regardless of what the job title is given, we don't need a proper product leader when there's only one or two product managers. There's not Mm. enough to lead. (laughs) Let's let's be honest, we we need a head of maybe or a – or just a senior product manager, but we don't a proper fully fledged experienced CPO or VP of product, unless they've got a big team to lead, then I'm not, we're asking them to be individual contributors, not leaders, but we're paying them Mm -hmm. as leaders. And, and then wondering why they were trying to take the leadership reins off the founder. Yeah. When the founder's not ready for it yet, the business isn't mature enough. It, that that that's a dichotomy that yeah. is, a founder's got to get right. But that's obviously where your consultancy comes in. Yeah, completely. I mean, is we that, do a lot is that of work. Advisory. Yeah, we do a lot of. We so typically we... would build the product VCP with the team, get that alignment, so we know where we're trying to go, and then we can work out mm. what what product function, what roles do we need, and capabilities do we need to deliver that strategy. Yeah. Too often we go in and hire a leader, get them to build the strategy, and then things go a bit wrong. Um, yeah. we, we can do that piece earlier on. Yeah, exactly. And as you said, advise on what level is needed. So when you do remove from the business, and exactly what the small consultancy does, you can say you don't need a full-time person or leader. You need X. And it's giving that honest advice, isn't it? So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a familiar scenario to us as internal recruiters caroline because i mean not all the time you're always going to come across where somebody is generally a bad hire but a lot of the time it hasn't worked out or people are leaving for internal reasons and when you start delving into it when you join a company you look at the attrition rate you can almost go okay well there's some problem in this area you know so it could be something really quick it could be something something Mm -hmm. more but it, it you know and it is looking at that and then as Caroline says taking that advisory step of right well why are you hiring this person what in this job spec do you Mm. actually need you know this job spec's Mm. five years old that you've been using to hire the same job which you've now replaced three times so you know what bits are those that are kind of the most valuable um I mean that you touched on a few different bits there that that we would probably called in recruitment i think it's fair to say red flags <laughs> yes sort of thing. But, i mean if you're a founder and you know you haven't hit that stage yet where you know growth has started to slow you know you're noticing it in monetary wise but you know one example you get there is you've had to let the product leader go or you know what other red flags should people be looking out for before it gets to that stage where you know they've had to trigger emergency procedures you know 
mm. before they start making those improvements. I think there's a perhaps the red uh, perhaps instead of red flags, there's a checklist of what the green flag should be, mm. and they're often missing. And they're missing so often. The fact they're not there is the red flag. Uh, it's such a common mistakes. So the green flags. What we need to see. We need a clear, articulated product strategy that people can actually execute and use on a day to day basis. Right. So they can look and go: Is this thing? Is this decision I'm about to make going to help us achieve our strategy or not? And that's where the product VCP comes in. We need a. Um, product function that is talking to the customer or the market and have to be paying customers if we haven't got enough or we're going into a new market but product managers are talking to customers and the market at least 30 percent of their time at least i think marty kagan suggests they should be talking to them to customers four hours a day oh gosh there are a yeah. few businesses in this country that manage that there are more in yeah. silicon valley that are Without that kind of at least they spend their time talking to customers. The product, the, the engineering function needs to be more responsible as a whole for its planning process and not rely on product for the whole thing. Products there to define the problem we want to solve, not necessarily to write every single little user story and task. Mm. Other, other parts of engineering can do that. So if the if the delivery process is overly onerous on the product manager and breaks if they're not there. That's that's a that's a problem, um, and we want to get to a place where we make sure we're measuring the outcomes. So, the agile phrase in product in pro, in uh, product development, the agile phrase of definition of done is pretty popular. Every team knows it's got to know what done is. What's the definition of done? Basically, when they're moving their tickets across a board, normally it's some sort of Kanban board in Jira. And we're moving them across those swing lanes from left to right. And they're at the far right means they're done. The definition of done is typically like we released the thing or we've tested the thing or something like that. It's never about the outcome. It's very rarely about the thing worked for the customer. <laughs> the definition of done should not be we committed code to some repository and built something. The definition of done is we made a difference to the customer. Mm because it wasn't done our job isn't as an engineering product engineering function isn't just to ship code it's to change user behavior so if we haven't put the code in front of a customer and they haven't had a positive response we failed if we release code and no one uses it we haven't done any we've not added any value hmm. and a definition of done that isn't aligned to value creation is definitely unhealthy so we've got to get to a place where measurements, people are looking at the usage of the features. So the three things I think I mentioned there were to sort of summarize, clear product strategy with a product VCP. Product managers talking to customers a lot, at least 30% of their working time. And we're measuring the outcomes that our feature releases are having. We understand customers are using it and we understand how it's creating value. And that last one is missing so frequently. It's like, oh, we have some analytics, but we haven't really got around to putting them in properly is normally the argument. Or we <laughs> looked at you buying some product analytics tool, but it was too expensive. And it's like, really? It was too expensive to understand whether the million pound you spent last three months 
created any value that you thought spending £2,000 too expensive to answer that question. That's insane. We wouldn't do that anywhere else in the business. We wouldn't have spent the money in the first place without being more confident there and then measuring whether it worked. It, so product analytics has got to be a bigger thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, you mentioned there another part of the business, though, but I think my experience widely across businesses has been analytics are either input badly so they're not measuring the right things or they're not finding the right outcomes and then people the other thing is trust people think their analytics aren't there to help them and help their job they think analytics are there to hit them with a stick at the end of the day and go you know you've not done that because traditionally you know we talk about kpis the phrase it's a horrible phrase but you know it is and because traditionally that's what people have had analytics for you know when they've been lower yeah. than the company is to basically go no get this up get this up um but it drives the wrong behavior then when you are doing those more strategic pieces because you do end up running around in circles as you said doing those bits that don't add any value because you don't have that oversight yeah i think yeah the value indicators are about the impact on the market and that customer not mm. measurements of our productivity not measurements of whether I move tickets across the wall quick enough or how many lines of code I wrote or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're measurements of the impact we had doing the work we do. And the assumption there is we're good at doing our work and you know managing that performance is a whole other conversation, but not measured in that way. So the you know, mo- this if you think about motivating engineering teams and product managers. There's normally three there's three secrets to motivating, and I don't think it's different to any function, to be honest. They need clear purpose, they need to feel a level of autonomy, and they need mastery. They need to feel like they're mastering what they do. Without understanding the outcome and impact we have, it's impossible to get a feeling of purpose and recognition. Mm. And it's impossible to feel mastery because we have no idea whether it worked. We can have autonomy. We can make bad decisions and good decisions without knowing it, and we still feel we're autonomous. But the other two need that data. If we want to do autonomy properly, we need the data too because we're learning. And it's back to that mindset of a learning mindset based on evidence. Yeah, and even we we touched on a few with a few different topics, even on the mental health aspect, having, as you, mm. I like the word, use mastery there because – Product managers, and I see this all the time, talking about imposter syndrome and the fact yeah. that they spend so much time where nobody really understands what they're doing. <laughs> like sometimes they don't even understand what they're doing, and you know it's 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 an issue. So having, as you said, that mastery piece can really help on a personal level as well as there's on a business level. Hmm. I mean, that's where the product. You know, if we are of a scale where we have a fully fledged product leader who isn't a player manager, then you know, their a large part of their time is coaching those product managers and helping those product managers um, make their decisions, feel confident, master their craft, avoid or overcome imposter syndrome when it hits, or avoid it in the first mm-hmm. place. You know, it, that that coaching, servient leadership style tends to fit better in the product world rather than a more dictatorial style. Mm-hmm. And when founders. I've got smaller product teams and they're effectively the product leader de facto. Um, that's often when they bring somebody in to help with that role because they can't do it on their own or they don't have the 
product craft to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I I personally don't coach product managers in that way, but there's plenty of people that do, and the friends mm-hmm. of right to left do for sure. And we've got loads of uh, loads of our partners. That's where they focus. I work in the leadership person level exclusively, mm-hmm. but um, there's lots of opportunity. Lots of people who are there to help. Um, and support that so that when a founder is not got the time or the mm. knowledge or, or the confidence in some cases, they can mm. have a coach who can support those people and help them grow. That's and really the, important. Probably the best way of doing that is when they coach the, pro, the a, a, a cross-functional team rather than a product manager on their own. Yeah, I agree with that, definitely. And that's great today. Um, Dave, we will sort of briefly move on to to talk about you know uh, obviously right to left and how people can can sort of get hold of yourself and also mm. um, we mentioned at the start but obviously talk about the book again. Uh, so before we do, we've just got sort of one final question which we like to ask everybody um, who, who comes on the podcast. Uh, if you were made prime minister for the day, what's the one policy that you would introduce? Oh wow, that's a cool question. I'm very, uh, I'm not the most politically astute person. I've spent too much of my time in technology and engineering to have time for that. Um, I'm an expert somewhere else. However, um, probably nothing to do with engineering or technology. I, I would be focused somewhere in education. I spent my, the probably the job I enjoyed the most regards impact in the world was when I worked at TES an education business Mm. where we supported pretty much every teacher in the UK and the data and watching the education sector in the UK and other countries, um, you know, like the data on teachers, the volume of teachers, we, we, um, we see more teachers leaving by a large number, leaving the profession Mm. every year than we do qualify. So we have a massive teacher shortage. And when I see the challenges funding in schools and teachers struggling and having to pay for books out of their own pocket, et cetera, et cetera, and then teachers themselves not being paid very well, so it doesn't attract the best talent. It attracts Mm -hmm. very brilliant vocational people, but it doesn't attract enough of them. Um, It doesn't attract anywhere near enough. Yeah, changing policy that would uh, see us improve our education, and that probably Mm -hmm. means transforming it. As education, it's a little bit like education reminds me of legacy waterfall projects in software companies so much. It's there that to, it doesn't care about the outcome. It cares about the process. It measures it ineffectively. Um, and it doesn't, you know, we don't train and build. It's built for a problem that hasn't changed since Victorian times and built for a different problem of educating a workforce to go and, work in factories in the majority of cases, given the number of people in that level. And today's world is more about knowledge working and complete, a completely different world. And like gig economy, the market the economy is changing. We need an education system that helps people problem solve and think. The knowledge piece is on the internet and I can just spin up chat GCP and answer any question. I need to know how to problem solve and how to ch- really change how education is done. But uh so there you go. I know if a day would do that, to be honest, but uh, that's, it would be about education if I, I had a that. day. Oh, that's great. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, as a son of two teachers, I think I would definitely agree um, with that one. But I mean, you're completely right. And it's, I, it always strikes me, you know, when you ask people to pick what career they're going to want, you know, when they're, what, 15. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. what, is it something like 60 to 80% of the careers won't exist at that point, you know? So it's like, how do yeah. you, you know, yeah. build an education <laughs> like that so. funnels somebody into something that doesn't exist? And I mean, I did a philosophy degree and it is about, it's about those systems of thought, basically. So it's not about the topics that you're learning. It is about how you make, you know, you said it's that problem solving piece and how you can think logically and make the things. And then once you've got those systems in place, you can put it to anything, you know. So yeah. I was going to say, apply it to anything then, can't mm. you? Yeah. The pace yeah. of change in the next 20 years is going to be far faster than the pace of change in the last 20 years. And then mm-hmm. hence, hence it's so much more important for education mm-hmm. to catch up. I agree. Yeah. That's great. I love that. Um, so, Dave, uh, remind uh, our listeners, obviously, where they can find you and obviously yeah. how they can engage right to left. Yeah, sure. I mean... It's easy to find us. Just go to righttoleft.co.uk. We're there. Um, and uh, the um, on LinkedIn, look for me, Dave Martin. You'll find me quite easily. Uh, publish quite a lot of material. Um, reach out in, wherever you want in those places. There's contact details everywhere. So uh, I'll connect with me on LinkedIn and we can chat. I'm always interested to have a call to see if and how I can help. And if I can't, I almost certainly know somebody who can, uh, so I can help help you out. Um, the book is due out pretty soon. It's called The Product Momentum Gap. Um, it'll be available on Amazon, so I'm really excited to, to get that out the door. It's been an enormous amount of work. Uh, it actually mm. started in 2016 as a conference speech for Mind the Product in Manchester, Mind the Product Engage. It's on video, and in the video, I'm like, I say, this is a uh, this talk is a prototype for the book to see if I should write it. And the <laughs> event ended up with people sat in the aisle and too many people in the room. Oh wow! Room. And everybody told me I should write the book. And it took me a little while to write it. I'm dyslexic, and book writing isn't necessarily my strongest strength. But I've partnered up with Andrea Sayers, who's amazing and a far yeah, better writer great. than me. And uh, working with Andrea, we've written the book together. Um, so I, I'm super excited to see it come out. Absolutely. Um, yeah. We'll definitely I mean, put a link to that as well once we can, because that's yeah, amazing. Yeah, we do. met Andrea. We met Andrea recently, and obviously I've worked with her before. So, yeah, fantastic. And John obviously recently met her. Oh, it's an amazing yeah. achievement. Huge achievement. Mm. Thank you very much. Very yeah. proud. Very proud. Yeah, I mean, I think, the amount of information that you and Andrew have given us, you know, the, the course of, of two, two meetings. Now, you know, I think anyone listening to this from the broader world will, you know, hopefully be going out and uh, yeah, picking that up as soon as it's available. Fantastic. Definitely. Um, well, Dave, thank you very much for, for agreeing to come and speak to us again. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. So remember, you can find Dave uh, on the right to left website or on his LinkedIn. And thank you very much for coming, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Small Podcast. We'll be back with even more guests discussing their careers in private equity and how they met the challenges of working in high-change environments. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe on your podcast app of choice and leave us a rating on Apple or Spotify.